Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Last week, we talked about exile. We talked about the exile of God's people into Babylon, but we also talked about how exile is like a metaphor, a way of talking about our experience of living in the tension between what God has done in Christ and what he has promised to do in the future. The tension of living in a world that isn't yet home, isn't quite right. Exile is a a powerful metaphor for our life today as we seek to flourish in a world that isn't always open to that, to even seek the good of a community around us that sometimes it feels might even be set against that. When we serve in a world that is not yet renewed the way God intends it to be renewed, we can feel a tension there between what God truly wants and what seems to actually happen. For the people of Israel, exile broke them from their old way of life. It was actually not only the result of unfaithfulness, but it was actually the faithful tool that God used to to bring his people around. Now, for many years, they flourished in Babylon and Assyria and other places they went, but God told them he would bring them back. Those promises are all over among the prophets, but Jeremiah himself told them very explicitly, you'll be in exile for 70 years, but then, God says, I will bring you back. I will restore you. Well, when those 70 years had come to an end, God influenced kings and he raised up leaders and he began to pull things together to support the return and the rebuilding of Israel. And today, we're going to continue our big story through the Bible. I hope it's helping you get a sense of how this all rolls out. And we're going to do that today by looking at the lives of two leaders, but really two books in the Bible, uh, books that are conveniently put together as a pair, and they think they were always kind of a pair of books. In fact, some would suggest they really were one book, but they have the title Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you're new to the story, particularly if you're new to the Bible as a story, these are probably not common names to you. They are well known as far as that goes, but they're a little more obscure. They're not like Moses and Abraham and David. They're Ezra and Nehemiah. They were both Jews who had been living, very likely they had been born and had been raised in Babylon. Far away from their ancestral homeland, by parents and grandparents who would have told them stories about the way it was, stories about why they were there, and had been leading them to follow God in Babylon. And both, just as Jeremiah had encouraged all of the exiles, both had flourished in exile. They had done well for themselves in captivity. They had blessed and they had served their captor nations, and as we will see, They themselves receive blessing and prosperity. I want to open the stage by reading the opening verses of the book 
of Ezra. I'll do a little more reading today than perhaps I normally do because I'd like you to hear this story for yourselves. It may be less familiar to most of you. And so hear the story in the opening words of Ezra, just the first eight verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, let me pause there, Persia had taken over from the Babylonians at this point. In that first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build the temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. You might remember, it had been torn down and destroyed 70 years before. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to their free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar, he was the, the king of Babylon when they had taken over Jerusalem, he had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by the treasurer, who counted them out to the prince of Judah. Shesh Bazar was his name. And what follows in the story of Ezra is a list, actually, an accounting of the, the names and the amounts of these exiles and the financial report they received, as well as the support they were getting now from Cyrus himself. Also, it chronicles resistance and opposition to this, because not everyone was supportive of this idea. But eventually, finally, the rebuilding of the temple begins. And what started to emerge from the ground as this foundation was first laid, well, it was only a pale shadow of the former glory of the temple that Solomon himself had built. But not everyone who was there recognized that. Listen to these words in Ezra 3, just a few verses. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard 
from far away. You know, even in the laying of the foundation of this temple, which was a remarkable thing, the fact that Cyrus, the king of the world, was supporting this fairly strongly. The fact that this was happening was such a work of God. And yet, even those who were present at its building recognized this isn't quite what it was. There's still something off about it. It doesn't match its former glory. And that hints, even here in this story, that though there is a return from exile, though there is a rebuilding that's taking place, it's mixed. It's not all great. It doesn't seem to have restored all that was lost. Yeah, it's good as far as it goes, and we're happy to be here, and yet, and yet, it maybe hints that the exile in some way, the return in some way, isn't fully what we had hoped it would be. Well, Ezra, though the book is named for him, or the first part of the book, he kind of comes in a ways into the story. The temple is actually built, it gets completed, and Ezra shows up as an expert teacher of the Torah, of the law of God. And he's exactly what's needed for the people at the time. You know, he wasn't around for the physical rebuilding of the temple, but it's like he's brought in as now the spiritual rebuilder of the people of God who will worship in this temple. And it's key, a key role to helping the people understand these people who have returned as well as there were some tiny groups that were still living there to help them now worship God faithfully, to actually deal with systemic sins that were among them, and then unite around the covenant that God had given them through Moses. We're told in Ezra 7 that, quote, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him, Ezra, everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He's a scholar teacher. He's able to bring God's word to the people who need to hear it so they can live by the covenant that God had made. And slowly but surely, God's people align themselves around God's word. And they began, some scholars would argue, in a way that they never had. In fact, maybe even for the first time in actuality, the people of God really actually were following the law of God. They were actually keeping the covenant. They were actually living according to the guidance that God had given them, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the festivals, things that there's pretty good evidence weren't happening beforehand. Years and years of resistance. Years and years of having the prophets come and warn them. Years and years of raiders come and then God rescuing and then certain bad things happening and God delivering them. All that did not work. And yet, the exile seems to have done the job. Historically, uh, people look at the the difference between uh, the people of God, uh, the, the children of Israel before and after exile, And there's quite a difference. A stark example would be that after the exile, we just don't see the kind of idolatry. Frankly, we don't really see it at all 
in the life of the people of God after exile. The way that was so common and so characteristic beforehand, which we've read about in Judges and Kings, we've heard that story. But afterwards, it seems like the exile, frankly, cured that. The people of God were faithful. They were following with integrity, and they were worshiping God alone. Other problems surfaced later, and when Jesus showed up, there were things that had gone off the tracks, but but they weren't worshiping other idols at that point. That, it seems like, had really changed. This exile had been like a radical reset for the people of God, a tool that God had used to bring change. So, the people have returned, some. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's not quite what it was. But what about the city of Jerusalem itself? The truth is, at this point, it was mostly desolate. The walls had been broken down and hadn't been rebuilt. And it was mostly deserted. I don't quite know what it would have been like to have lived in a mostly deserted city. I think of the post-apocalyptic type films where somebody is wandering through this city that once was and no one's there. But I think that's a bit of what Jerusalem would have been like. Enter Nehemiah. Whereas Ezra was a scholar of the law, a teacher, probably a nerd, and he probably spent as much time in books as he did anywhere else, Nehemiah was a highly placed, highly trusted civil servant. He was a cupbearer to the king himself, a very trusted position. I mean, literally the guy who'd sip the cup to make sure it wasn't poisoned, he'd die first before the king, but also someone incredibly trusted, incredibly valued, rewarded in the presence of the king, highly influential. He receives word that while the temple has been rebuilt and uh, his you know, own people are now living back in Jerusalem, all is not well with these repatriated Jews. Let me read you a bit of his opening story in Nehemiah chapter 1 and just into chapter 2. I want you to hear this because it really shows us the experience that Nehemiah has of hearing about the story and then how that all flows out into what comes next. Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, 
I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. It's quite a setup. It goes on. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Let me just pause there and say, doesn't it suggest quite a trust relationship that exists between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes? An openness to each other? Nehemiah has prayed that somehow God will work to grant favor with this man, but I think there's already some favor here. Well, Nehemiah goes on and says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever! Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I also have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And what follows is a tremendous story of political intrigue, of frustrated plans, of back and forth and lobbying and delays in building, enemy opposition, but the slow reconstruction of the walls and gates of Jerusalem. Together, both Ezra and then Nehemiah lead God's people to rebuild, to restore this worshiping, faithful community back in the land that God had given them, back in the city where he had promised he would place his name. It was hard work, it was filled with struggle, and yet God's hand was upon them every step of the way. Ezra and Nehemiah joined together to help the people continue to pursue faithfulness, and it was a rocky road. Things were not easy. Mistakes were made. And yet, together, They brought God's people back. They were part of the fulfillment of the promise that God had made through Jeremiah and others that they would return. And yet, and yet, 
it still wasn't quite right. Yes, the walls were up. Yes, they were back in the city, but they were still under foreign kings. They were never really free from overlords again. They had their temple and worship was restored, and yet never did the glory of the Lord descend on that second temple the way that it had on the first, or the way that it had on the tabernacle. We soon no record of that. The city, the temple, the people began to talk as though the exile was only partially over, that there was still a coming exodus or a return from exile that needed to happen. And that feeling grew, that sense of there must be something more began to be talked about, envisioned in the prophets. And promises were made. Now, I can't think of a better way of exploring that a little more than watching another Bible Project video. The guys at the Bible Project are amazing. I love their stuff. I highly recommend it. But right here, right now, I, I want to offer this other video. It's different than the one that was at the end of the service last week. Another video about exile, which really helps us understand this theme of exile as it traces through the whole of the story. And then after this video, I'll come back with some concluding thoughts. There's something about being home, where everything's just right. We're surrounded by people we love and trust. There's a feeling of stability and safety. And while some people get to experience this kind of home, many do not. Others might even be forced to leave their home and go live in a foreign land. We call this going into exile. Yeah, in exile, everything is disoriented. You're in the unknown. And in the story of the Bible, this is where the ancient Israelites found themselves, conquered by Babylon, living in exile far from their homeland. And so they had to ask themselves, how did we end up here, and is there any hope of going home? And the whole story of the Bible is designed to address those very questions. The whole story? Really? Yeah, go back to the first pages of the Bible. Where does humanity live? Okay, they live in this really sweet garden, their home. And they're there on one condition, that they trust and follow God's one command, and they don't. And so the consequence is banishment from the garden. Ah, they're sent into exile. Exactly. And so this story has been designed to set you up for Israel's story, how they were given the gift of the promised land and were able to stay there on one condition, that they be faithful to the terms of their covenant relationship with God. Uh, They didn't, and they were sent into exile. And if you still don't see the parallel between exile from the garden and exile from Israel, think about this. In Genesis, humanity's exile led up to the story about the building of what city? Oh yeah, Babylon. The same place the Israelites are sent. But that's not the end of either story. In the first Babylon, God called Abraham to leave and travel to the promised land. And that story was designed to give hope to the Israelites currently living in the later Babylon. Now eventually, they do get to leave and travel back to their promised homeland. And when they did, it wasn't home sweet home. Oppressive empires were still ruling over them, and the people kept acting in the same corrupt ways as their ancestors. And so the biblical prophets said that exile wasn't actually over. How could they think they were still in exile when they're at home? 
Yeah, this is really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's Babylonian exile became an image of something more universal. It's that feeling of alienation and longing for something more no matter where you live. Yeah, I I can relate to this. I have a great home, but it's situated in a world scarred with pain and broken relationships, death, tragedy, done by others, but also done by me. And so in the Bible, exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. And it doesn't matter where you live, we are all longing for a better home. Now Israel's scriptures held out hope that one day God would send a king who would rescue the world from all of the Babylons we've created. And after many generations pass, we meet this Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth. He wandered about with no home, announcing the great restoration, that reality of home that Israel and all humanity has been looking for. Yeah, Jesus really cared about people who didn't have homes. He welcomed in the stranger. He said God's love is shown when you invite in the outcast and throw parties for people who don't have a place to belong. Jesus also claimed that Israel and all humanity had lost its way that our self-centeredness drives us to create false homes based on status and power, and these inevitably exclude others. We live in an exile of our own making. But Jesus said the true way home is one of weakness, of service, and of forgiveness. And then Jesus went into exile alongside us to show us the true way home. Which is? Well, Jesus said he is the way. His life and self-giving love proved more powerful than humanity's failure. He opened up a pathway to our real home. And as Jesus' followers committed themselves to him, they discovered this new way of being human. They believed that the real return from exile had begun. And so they would call themselves sojourners or wanderers. Oh, right. They would say things like, the world isn't our home and we're citizens of heaven. And so Jesus' followers remain exiles as they wait for that day when Jesus returns to transform this world into a true home. Well, I really appreciate that. I think that really captures a lot of what I've been trying to say and just such an amazing, strong theme through all of Scripture. There's two lessons in this today that I think give us hope, and I'd like to just offer them to you as we move toward our finish. The first one is this. God has promised that when we serve where he's placed us, he will use our place to serve his promises for the world. In other words, as we are faithful where we are, God uses that faithfulness. One of the striking things about this story is that Ezra and Nehemiah both were in positions of influence because they had chosen to seek the good, the prosperity, the flourishing of their city, government, king. That as they were serving day in and day out their whole lives, I don't think they really knew. I don't think they had any idea that that position would eventually enable them to bring prosperity back to their own People. I don't think when Ezra was pouring over the law, he thought that the king himself would be siding with him like that. I, I don't know that when Nehemiah moved up the ranks of civil authority and eventually got this place of trust, that he realized it would be that very place of influence that God used to do something dramatic, to bring his promises 
to fruition for the people of Israel. And so there's a question in here for me, a question for us. Where is God giving you influence? What's your position? Where are you? The truth is, God places us in our positions. We find ourselves where we are, not by coincidence. That God has enabled us by his Holy Spirit to serve him and serve others right where we are. We talked about this a bit last week. But I want to sharpen the question and ask you, what position of influence do you have? In what way does the place in which you serve enable you to bring hope, freedom, life to others around you who may not have been able to experience it before? It could be that God has given you a special voice in a situation. It could be that God has privileged you in such a way that you're able to use your influence, your wealth even, to to bring change, to bring hope to someone. It could be that there's someone you can come alongside and just encourage them. It could be an experience that you've had that you're able to share open-hearted with someone. And as a result of your experience, you're able to bring hope to someone else who is struggling. Where has God placed you? Where do you have influence? I invite you to ask that question. You may not be sipping the potentially poisoned cup of a foreign king, but each and every one of us have influence. Each and, one of us, each and every one of us are in places where we can bring goodness and life and freedom and hope to those around us. And so I invite you to ask that question. Where has God placed you? The second thing is like, it, is like this, because when we acknowledge where we are, and even the things that God has called us to do and the work he's given us, even the really good work he's given us, we can look at that work and still feel like it's not enough. It's not really bringing the change. I could give all my money to the poor and then still be poor. Now, that doesn't mean I shouldn't give my money to the poor, but do you know what I mean? We can look at the good things that we're invested in, that we're serving, the organizations we're building, the, the, the way we're working to, to bring good flourishing, and yet recognize that this may last for a few years, even a generation, but eventually it will falter. We can feel even discouraged by the things that are going on around us now. And so this brings us to my second clarifying question, perhaps, a lesson that gives me hope, and that's this. When the work today looks frail and even faulty, when it seems so small that we are wondering if it will make any difference at all, I want to encourage you to look to the future in faith. To know that God is actually doing something greater than we can see And he's doing it with things smaller than we can imagine. Jesus told a lot of stories in his teachings about the kingdom of God. And a lot of those stories featured small things becoming big. You know, mustard seeds growing into trees that birds nest in. Or or yeast that is going through the dough. Or things that are happening by surprise and unexpected things being found. What Jesus was trying to get us on about is that God is at work in ways that we can't often identify. He calls us to be faithful in those places and to trust in faith that he's going to do something with what we're offering in a way 
that we could never have imagined. That we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now go and rule much. That God is the God who is able to rebuild and restore using often our weak and faulty gifts to do something beautiful and amazing that we would never have expected. When we look at the vision of the whole story, God is bringing us to his intended goal, a rebuilt city, a rebuilt temple. What we discover through the story, of course, is that this rebuilt temple that happens in Ezra and Nehemiah, this rebuilt city, it doesn't actually fulfill the ultimate promise that God has given. God, as it were, fulfills the promise he gives in installments. When he returns these exiles from Babylon and they erect the walls around Jerusalem and they're worshiping the temple, God knows that that's really only a foretaste of what's to come. When Jesus shows up, he identifies his own body as the temple that though it will be destroyed, it will be rebuilt in three days. We know that he talks about his own people as the temple of God being built up by the Holy Spirit. And the story moves us forward pointing us to this vision that God has of the future, of of a new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, which is actually the people of God, a metaphor for the people of God, descending out of heaven, so that heaven and earth joining together as God renews all. God is fulfilling these promises in installments because he's faithful to complete what he started. And so we who are here in the middle just like those who watched the early temple, second temple be built and the walls come up, we can recognize that, yeah, God is doing something great. As we look into the future in faith, we can see that he's going to do something that's beyond our imagination, that that so far outstrips the little we see going on, but gives, what is it? Gives a a sense of weightiness and, and, and hopefulness even to the small things we're involved in. God is just that good. So you might be tempted to quit at times. You might look around you and say, oh, what's the point? And my encouragement to you is to remember the God of resurrection has said to us, knowing all that Christ has done, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. And when we get a hold of that, when we see through the eyes of faith the future that God is is working even in the present, that gives us great joy. It can turn our mourning and exile into the joy of gladness, as we're promised in Jeremiah 31. And so today as we finish, I encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has gone before us, and but for the joy set before him, went to the cross, but did it for us. That as we fix our eyes on him and his good hope, that it will fill us with joy. This last song that I'd like you to get up and dance to today, uh, your kids, if you have kids, have probably wandered off. I encourage you to call them back into the room because they will want to dance along with you on this wonderful song by Matt Redman, Trading My Sorrows, brought to us by a tremendous VBS crew from a church down in California. I hope you'll get up and dance along. And as you do, the places where you felt discouraged, the places where you felt it isn't working anymore, the places where you've been tempted to give up, my prayer 
is that you'll be able to take that sorrow and trade it for joy. May the God of hope fill you today as you trade your sorrows for the joy of the Lord. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.